Hey, this is Thor from Cyberry. If you've been enjoying the Cyberry podcast or one of the other series like 401 Access Denied or Go For It with Sarah Moffat, then make sure to like, follow, or subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And we'd love to hear from you. Join the discussion by leaving us a comment or review on your platform of choice, and you could be featured in a future episode. From all of us at Cyberry, thank you and enjoy the show. You're listening to the 401 Access Denied podcast. I'm Mike Rowan, VP of Engineering and CISO at Cyberry. Please join me and my co-host, Joseph Carson, Chief Security Scientist at Thycotic, as we discuss the latest news and attempt to make cybersecurity accessible, usable, and fun. Be sure to check back every two weeks for new episodes. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to 401 Access Tonight podcast. I'm here, your co-host, Joe Carson, Chief Security Scientist at Icotic, based in a very late, dark evening in Estonia, where it's pretty cold outside. So um, I'm happy to be inside here talking with you today. And of course, I'm joined with my co-host, Mike G. Do you want to give us a little bit of uh, intro and what the topic's going to be and who we're going to be talking to today? Yeah, Mike Groen, uh, VP here uh, at Cyberry uh, and CISO. Uh, and today we're going to be talking with Ted. I'll let him introduce himself. Why don't you go ahead and introduce him? And we'll, we'll just get started. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Uh, Ted Harrington here. I'm the author of a best-selling book called Hackable, How to Do Application Security Right. And I am the executive partner at the security consulting company, uh, Independent Security Evaluators. Welcome. Awesome. It's great to be here. And, and I think you know that's really important is, is that the big theme for today's show is really talking about application security and really for organizations and you know uh, those around the world who are really kind of you know, creating applications, delivering applications, and even testing applications is really to make sure that you know they actually doing it so that we actually think you know security first, security by design. Um, and that's one of the critical things here to talk about. So, and it's awesome to be joined with uh, with Ted here, who's basically you know the specialist in the field, and really interested to see his thoughts and you know opinions into what's the best way organizations can approach application security. So, so Ted, do you want to give us a bit of understanding about kind of the the kind of broader scope of application security, and even you know the book Hackable and what it really approaches and some of the kind of methodologies that it's really uh, educating people on. Software runs the world, right? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so that's why this whole field needs to exist, you know, securing applications. And the reason that I wrote the book, I guess the scope of it is to think about sort of almost programmatically how organizations should think about the entire process of securing software. And it covers the book itself covers a a number of different areas, but what's interesting, I mean, I wrote the book that's basically like exactly what we advise all of our clients (laughs) and our security consulting business to do too. And it covers sort of the the full spectrum from, you know, how should you think about uh, your mission at all? Like how should, what should your attitude be of security? How do you work with outside security uh, experts? How do you share information? How do you find vulnerabilities? How do you fix them? How do you deal with change? How do you build security into the development process? How much should you spend? And then ultimately, how do you convert this into business benefit, uh, which I argue is to gain a competitive advantage? Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. So, Mike, Mike you, you're in the same, you know, you're all. You're yeah, I mean, that's really how well, I got so. started into security, right? <laughs> I, my background is software engineer. 
So application security and bridging that gap between the engineering team and the operations team and the security teams is what sort of led me down uh, this career towards uh, cybersecurity. I'm curious, like one of the one of the big things is risk. Like how do you, I assume your book talks about how to try and figure out, like when you're trying to figure out how much to spend, like risk is probably the the critical thing. Like how, can you maybe talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I did talk about risk in the book. I mean, you couldn't really write a security book and not address risk. <laughs> right, right, right. But I mean, in terms of like figuring out like what's the value, right? Like you have to be able to assess, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I feel that, um, so I'm, risk is of course a field unto itself. And so I, while I did touch on risk, uh, this is not, I wouldn't consider this a book about risk. Well, in terms of the field of risk, it's right. obviously all of security is about managing risk and understanding it. And what is one of the, the whole book is structured around identifying common misconceptions that people have about how to secure software systems. And then saying, hey, you know, everyone thinks it's X, but it's actually not X, it's Y. And then I explained, you know, the differences between X and Y. And one of the, the sort of, I guess, common misconceptions that people sort of think about with risk, because it's so many approaches are really not tailored to the system in particular. So, for example, most approaches that are largely just vulnerability scanning, mm-hmm. the output of those tools really doesn't isn't customized or calibrated to that particular organization's threat model. So you might have, oh, here's a bunch of critical vulnerabilities. You might have high severity vulnerabilities. You might have even low severity vulnerabilities. And you look at them and they might not be the right rating based on what the business actually Mm -hmm. does. And so I talk a lot about how do you think about what the severity is? And then once you can effectively understand the severity, what do you do with that information? Yeah, that's a great point. I think it reminds me, you know, being based in Estonia over the years, we've been really looking at this very kind of, you know, pragmatically as well. And one of the things I learned was that in Estonia, there was a transition. It was around in 2007 to 2010, where the government was really kind of going through their strategy about, you know, how they're doing security. And this, of course, is the post-2007 uh, nation-state attack that Estonia had. And they're really looking about how can they strengthen they're actually services and systems and software and applications that they deliver. Because in Estonia, we, we deliver a lot of things through digitalization, whether it being voting or tax or online banking. And a lot of those applications, they want to make sure that they had security by design. And one of the fundamental things was that a lot of organizations, they took it, they were, that was a phase when they were going through the software-defined network and looking at it by delivering software and what was the software being delivered but Estonia took it from a very different approach. They realized that it's not about delivering the software itself. It's about what services that software are these multiple applications providing together. And they looked at it from a service-defined network and thinking about, and then what is the cost of that service once unavailable? And that was ultimately kind of where they made this transition to looking and making a risk approach rather than saying, if this application A is unavailable, it was very hard to justify the tangible cost of that. But if you have a service approach, which has been supported by these multiple applications, they can start looking at it from the actually cost of downtime. If this system wasn't available for a day or an hour or a week, whatever it might be, they were able to then justify those costs. And ultimately, going to Mike's point, Ryan, then they can actually come up with what did they want to invest to reduce the risk. And it reminds me, I did a few years ago, I did a penetration test in a power station. And ultimately, I did the same thing like other security consultants do at the time is I went back and I provided all of the fear, all the vulnerabilities and all of the risks. And then we presented it to the board and the board said, well, thank you. 
Um, great presentation, really scared us. You know, you know, we're, we're frightened. <laughs> we're afraid to go and look at our emails at home tonight. But you, you didn't kind of justify the same language that we understand. Is you didn't get, you know, we did, they didn't approve the budget that we were looking for, and they said that the reason for that was that we didn't show the return on investment. We didn't show how we're actually helping the organization reduce the risk, how we're helping employees do their job better, how we're actually providing value into uh, the shareholders and investors and everything else. We didn't do a tangible kind of you know, return on investment for that. And it really made me realize that, yes, everything we do, of course, security has a risk approach, but we ultimately have to understand about, you know, what is all of those combinations together? What is the service ultimately we're delivering? And this ultimately kind of gets into then having understanding about what do you need to invest into? And then the CFO at the time made a major statement to me. And it was, this is, his, I never remember when he did it in his accent. You know, so, but he said, you know, you have to show, you know, we asked, well, how do we identify that tangible cost? And he said, it's, it's, it's easy. It's the cost of doing something versus the cost of doing nothing. And that's kind of ultimately where you get that cyber gap. Is that and they're willing to when they looked at it from a business perspective, if they can reduce the risk, they were willing to invest 10. And if you know it was significant risk, even up to 30% of the cost to reduce that risk even further. And sometimes deciding on insurance and so forth is an option. Um, so ultimately that was an interesting approach. So, so uh, Ted, you know, have you looked at it anywhere around from those risk assessment or even let's say, you know, how software individually or software collectively um, regards to applications, how they you know, can, can be worked together. Because a lot of times what organizations do when they're doing a penetration test is they focus on application individually rather than the collective of what it's doing uh, together. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of elements to what you just talked about that are so interesting and I'd love to dig into. But mm-hmm. the, the first one that I want to start with is talking about this idea of return on investment. Mm-hmm. Because... I I actually I agree with a lot of what was said there in that you know the the people who ultimately approve any sort of investment they they need to be understanding the issue in business terms and when when I was writing my book and uh, I one of the things that I did was I started looking around our customers mm-hmm. and saying okay well these they obviously you know run the spectrum from very 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 capable organizations in terms of their security maturity all the way down to like none they're just mm-hmm. getting started but they all really shared this this common trait which is they're investing a considerable amount of time effort and money mm-hmm. with us to to do this and i had to really unpack why and you know, the obvious statement across the board is security matters to all of them. It reflects mm-hmm. their core values. It's, you know, it's just part of their mission. So like that sort of goes without saying, but let's be honest, we live in a capitalist world. That's That alone <laughs> isn't sufficient to justify an investment. Just like the right thing to do mm-hmm. isn't always the thing that the business is going to do. But the other thing that really became apparent as I was thinking about is every single one of these companies maybe not, maybe I shouldn't make a general mm-hmm. statement, but almost all of them were looking at security as something that would help them obtain a competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. Because th- if we think about it from the viewpoint of the enterprise buyer, right? Everyone who's not everyone, but most people who are building software in the business to business space are trying to sell it to an enterprise eventually. Mm-hmm. And those enterprise buyers have really high expectations of security, very different from what a consumer cares about. But an enterprise buyer absolutely is expecting the software they buy to be secure. Now, they're not willing to spend more for it, unfortunately, but they 
definitely demanded as like a requirement of the business. So that's one factor to keep in mind. The buyer wants the software that they use to be secure. Most organizations that are commercializing software struggle to actually secure it and struggle even more to prove it. Like the, the ability to communicate is really difficult. So when you take those two things come together and you realize the buyer wants X and almost nobody can deliver X, that's an enormous opportunity to differentiate. And so the companies who can deliver X, which is of course, mm-hmm. secure your software system and prove it. Those are the organizations that can go to their CFO and say, hey, this isn't about this big, scary number that could happen and we're going to spend a percentage of it to try to reduce likelihood. It's let's invest this money and win more sales. Let's win them faster. Let's earn those enterprise customers we're looking for. And as we've been advocating for that, and that's one of the arguments that I make Mm -hmm. in the book and teach people exactly how to do that. uh, Now they realize, well, this is a totally different way to think about security, Mm -hmm. which is that it's not just removal of a bad thing. It's pursuit of a good thing. And that's really compelling to uh, enterprises and those who approve budgets. Mm-hmm. I think it's also similar to like one of the areas where I found I've gotten good traction is that security is no different than any other type of bug. You don't like companies don't generally balk at the idea of a QA team or testing or making sure the features work the way they're supposed to or don't have unintended consequences because, you know, whether it's a good UX, a good, you know, whatever it is, you want to have a good user experience. And that's where I found like security isn't that dissimilar. Um, And I think there's also a big difference though between companies that are building applications to sell, as you said, like it gives you that competitive advantage, it does whatever, but then you have plenty of enterprises that are building their own internal applications. And I think that's where the struggle is probably the hardest to justify some of this stuff because the, the pressure to ship and get the thing out to the, to whatever problem they're trying to solve, um, as opposed to, because you can't really make that, well, I'm curious, can you make that competitive advantage, you know, point when you're talking about sort of an internal application that you're building or, or whatever. Yeah, I think, I mean, for me, I agree. I think it's one of the important things from an internal, you know, security perspective is, is that they have to look at themselves as actually, you know, how, you know, from, let's say, whether it be an engineering team and a security team together, they have to look at the combined effort to actually show how they can actually add value. I remember listening to, it was an awesome talk a few years ago. Um, it was about, uh, it's an Italian insurance company that really kind of took, they, they had a, a, a new CISO came on board and really took it from a very different approach about all the things they were doing in the organization from a security perspective. They actually mapped it into actually how they can make it actually part of their business model. So they actually turned it around and said that as we're investing in security and our new applications and awareness training and you know everything we're doing around culture and, and it was about people, technology, process, and even the services they were building and delivering, they said, they're going to actually identify how every time they actually deliver a new service, how to actually integrate the security into it and actually make it something that was sellable. I think that's one that we need to be doing better at, is that ultimately, you know, rather than saying, as you're saying, Mike, it's just a bug, we need to fix it. So, you know, it's a, was it a deficit or it's you know, refactoring of whatever it might be or you know, changing the design? We always have to think about how does that map to actually you know, innovation making the product better in regards to making it more sellable. Sometimes we end up going and looking at just regulations and standards. People end up going for the ISOs and the PCIs and other types of regulatory things for the checkboxes to show that, yeah, we're doing these right things. 
but ultimately they're failing to actually really engage it and map it into actually the service that they're delivering of how that makes increased value. And I think that's ultimately where organizations can see and make a change in this going forward is that by investing in security is actually, it's a business investment into making them more sellable. Um, and that can be a unique, you know, differentiating between many organizations. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, the word you used is spot on better, right? That's the, that is the whole ethos of the entire profession mm-hmm. of security is we make things better. It's never done. You're never like, and we're secure. We can now go do other things. It's like, we have to be better today than we were yesterday. We have to be better tomorrow than we are today. And if we're doing those things, then we'll, then we're doing security right. And, uh, you know, Mike, your point was definitely well-founded, which is that the case is different if you're commercializing the solution versus you're trying to convince other business units internally to use it. But many of the same elements actually carry over from what we've seen with the large enterprises that are our customers is that a lot of the same market forces still exist in that, you know, two business units in the same enterprise actually still buy things from each other. They borrow budget, Mm -hmm. they borrow resources, Mm -hmm. they, there's, um, in, in some sense, it's even more competitive, right? Where they're like, well, well, we built this thing because our workflow is so special and different from yours. And so the ability to be able to say, hey, look, we've already thought about security. This already meets all the you know conditions that the corporate security team requires. This is how it's going to make it easier for you. It all goes, you still have to do a sell job even when you're mm-hmm. commercializing internally. And security is a, a critical part of that for sure. Yeah, your point about um, you know, it never ends. I was just talking to a friend this weekend and we were talking about how security and even software development for that matter is like mowing the lawn, right? Like <laughs> right. It just the grass keeps growing or getting a haircut. Like as soon as you're done, you're not done. It's already growing again and you have to take care of it. So it's, you know, or you can just let it go and turn to weeds and then forest and <laughs> that's a great metaphor. I'm gonna I'm definitely gonna borrow that because it yeah. really helps you visualize that it will, it decays. You have to do something or it gets worse. Right. I'll actually give credit. It was Steve Jacobs, who was a, a previous uh, guest on the podcast. Uh, he and I were talking about it. And he was, yeah. So I love like, it. Like mowing the So <laughs> when, is, is it different? So, so Ted, for organizations, you might have been doing this quite a long time. I've been through development organizations that were very much waterfall approach. And we had releases every, you know, one year, two years, to I've seen you know even here in Estonia there's a lot of startups who basically you know go straight to cloud and and accelerate and grow very quickly and they're very agile and dynamic. Um, I mean, is there is is what your kind of your methodology approach work for both of those or do they have to find some kind of different uh, uh, approach? You know, for organizations that are very traditional, um, do they need to change significantly versus those who are, who are you know, the startups who, who tend to more focus about getting an MVP product out the door um, and then adding security on later? Uh, but ultimately, those organizations, both the, the traditional kind of monolith, you know, waterfall approach for the release every one or two years that the security doesn't get updated that frequently and uh, versus those that, uh, you know, lack to, to prioritize it at the beginning. I, what I love about this question is how polarizing it is. Everyone who just listened to you that listened to you ask that question is going to fall in one of those camps, and they're going to be like, "Waterfall's the best." Screw Agile, and Agile people are going to be like, "Screw Waterfall, Agile's the best." And then there's someone else being like, "But what about?" And you know, like everyone continuous delivery, which is what we do here, because Agile is not yeah. as agile as you think. No, it's not. <laughs> exactly. 
And then, you know, in a year, there's going to be another methodology. And so the, 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 when I was thinking about how to answer that exact question in, uh, as I was writing these ideas down, and again, looking at all of the companies that we're fortunate to serve and how do they deal with it? What are their struggles and how do they overcome them? And the, if you, if you really simplify it and we sort of like, you know, step back from what we're talking about here and get away from the like specifics of how the methodologies actually work, we realize the fundamental principles are the same. Now, how you go about those principles obviously is different. Agile, waterfall, they're really, really different methodologies, but the fundamentals are the same, right? You identify a problem, you set the requirements for what you're going to do uh, in order to solve that problem. Then you figure out how you're going to solve it. Then you go build the solution of the problem and then you go implement and maintain it. So whether you do that on the whole system or you do that on a user story, like those steps are the same. And each of those steps has a security step to it as well. And that's really the big thing that people need to take away from it. it. It almost doesn't matter what your methodology, I mean, it matters because how you implement it matters, but the point is the same that whatever methodology is being used, there is a security process that integrates into it. And to, when I ever hear people say like, oh, well, we use blank methodology, so we do security later. It's like, mm, nope, that's incorrect. <laughs> security is built in through the whole process. Yeah, I would agree. I think the 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 bit when it comes to those methodologies, really the difference is has more to do with the release strategy or the deployment strategy, the yeah. frequency or how if you are doing, you know, quarterly releases or annual releases, how do you deal with something that's needs to be released more, you know, has a more pressing need versus continuous delivery where we as soon as it's done, we get it out the door. Not to say that one's better than the other, but I think there's just that's where the implications are. It's not in the, as you said, it's not in the, when do we do security or when do we think about security? It's more of the like, okay, if this is how we're delivering our solution, what's the implication for that? And, you know, um, from a security perspective. Yeah. I think one of the things, so, so Ted, you know, based on, on, on both those things, I think those are you know, fantastic points that, you know, um, about no matter what methodology you're using, that you need to build the security into that entire process irrespective of waterfall or agile. Now, one of the things that, you know, it gets into a lot of it goes into the testing phase of it, because that's sometimes where the difference between Agile and Waterfall is, is around that testing approach that you test, you find bugs, you basically fix the bugs, and then you test again, where in Agile, of course, you're doing that continuously as you're, as you're building and developing and deploying. Now, one of the things is that, that for organizations who, who are building software, that they, I find all the time they don't really understand security aspect of things, the security testing or security approaches. I've had organizations come to me or building or startups or building software and say, I want to do a red team assessment or I want to do a vulnerability assessment or I want to do a pen test. And you're going to them and you're like, okay, well, you're going to, you want to do a red teaming on an MVP product that isn't even in the production type of environment where you got the people and the operators because red teams really focus around many aspects of when it's actually being delivered, you can't do really do a red team on a product that's not actually, you know, being actually delivered in production, um, right. used by the people who's going to be using it and operating it. So there's a lot of confusion into, you know, what security testing is and vulnerability and bug bunty and all of those things between application. Um, and I think it was Joe Vest wrote a really great book around red teaming, um, you know, that side of things about understanding the methodology. Um, what's your approach when you're talking about you know, from an application perspective, what application security, you know, is for those who don't really understand about, you know, the methodologies. I think that what you just brought up is such a profound problem in security. Like the idea that 
people don't always even understand the terms that are being used and, and like, why is that an issue? And it's such a big problem. I dedicated an entire chapter in my book to that problem actually. And the way it plays out in real life, I mean, in, in, you know, our business, we're security consultants and people hire us to test their systems. So almost every day, someone asks me, Hey, can you help us with penetration testing? And my answer is always, maybe, um, <laughs> what do you want to achieve? Like, that's really the question that matters. What do you yeah. want to achieve? Because the practical reality that I've seen in the world that's really troubling is that you have these, these conditions, right? Most people, when they want to test their system, they, they typically ask for penetration testing. Sometimes they mm-hmm. ask for red teaming, which is yet another thing that is something different. But, uh, you know, they usually ask for penetration testing. But then what they're usually sold is something else, which is vulnerability scanning. Like if you Google right now, penetration testing, like 85, maybe 95% of the results you're going to get are scanned-based approaches. But what people really need is a third thing. is something else altogether, which is vulnerability assessments. And the sort of metaphor that I think of, how do we, how do we differentiate what these three things are, is I like to use uh, cars as a metaphor for this one. So penetration testing is like when the automotive maker wants to see how does the vehicle perform in a crash scenario. Mm-hmm. So they actually, they literally crash the car against the wall. And that's kind of like penetration testing. You take a real world scenario, you emulate it, but it it's really only works for a system that's already been through a lot of testing. And it tests for like a really specific set of criteria. Mm-hmm. It's not a holistic uh, approach. It's just like, hey, we're, we want to see in this situation what happens. And then it gives you a binary outcome. Like the, mm-hmm. the passenger did or did not survive. So that's, kind of what penetration testing is like. And that's badass. Mm. But what people are mostly sold is vulnerability scanning, which is more like when the check engine light comes on in your car and you go to the oil change and they they like stick the little device in and it's like, oh, here's a, a code of what the problem is. And here's how we turn off the check engine light. It's very easy and quick and inexpensive to do, which is what vulnerability scanning is also like. But it's really different. Like those the, the crash testing a car and the, the scan of the, di- the diagnostic scan, they're really different. And yet what people mostly need is they're getting testing because they want to understand the system holistically. They want to understand the severity of the issues. They want to fix the issues and they want to verify that the fix has worked. And so that's really much more like the entire process of uh, automotive safety engineering, which basically says, okay, here's how the seatbelts work with the head restraints, with the airbags, with the side impact beams. How does it all work together? And how do we make sure that the passenger is more likely to survive in the event of a collision? And so those three things are really different, really different outcomes, really different investments of time, money, and resources. And my advocacy is instead of, while I, w- while I wish everyone used the right terms, I think it's at this point like a lost battle where mm-hmm. like no one's ever going to use the right term to describe security testing ever. Instead, let's just talk about the goal right? What is the outcome that you want to achieve? And then we work backwards from there to say, okay, well, okay, you need this type, you need a pen test, or you need a vulnerability scan, or you need a vulnerability assessment, or you need red teaming, or you need bug bounties or whatever. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And that's something that, you know, we, we get frustrated all the time. I think we, we did a show, was it a few months ago, which was on basically buzzword bingo, <laughs> which is about all the terms that we hear in the industry that are created from, you know, basically emphasis of marketing, just trying to re-spin something that we've already been doing for many years. So hopefully we'll get away from 
that. And I, and I agree, it should be focused around what is the intention of the goal. And that's really understanding about what you're trying to achieve and having some type of scoping discussion and understanding about what is their business. Because not many are different, very different and don't have, you know, the same uh, types of, of methods or, or, or uh, structures. So you can't just take one method and apply it to everyone. You have to understand about what is going to be used. Um, another question I've got for you, Ted, is around, you know, a lot of the newer ways of developing applications are using a lot of modular approaches, meaning that they've got a lot of dependencies and a lot of third-party components and maybe even shared cloud resources. Um, What's the approach you would suggest for those organizations that, you know, have a lot of, you know, basically third-party resources or plugins or libraries that they're building in and hard to manage those in, in addition to what they're building themselves? Yeah, that, that's definitely an inherent issue with pretty much any software system that's getting built today. There's going to be dependencies. And the likelihood that any organization will be successful in getting that third party to participate in any sort of white box testing is mm-hmm. like, good luck. <laughs> You're going to call some company you, that you do business with be like, we would like to look at your source code. They're like, yeah, how about shut up? Uh, it's just not going to happen. So what organizations need to do is they need to understand where those dependencies lie. Mm-hmm. They need to account for that in part of their threat model. And then ultimately you defend against it with uh, defense in depth. And so that's assuming that these shared components might themselves ultimately be the, the source of mm-hmm. a security breach. And then how do you mitigate the, the likelihood of um, that compromise impacting your system and then how do you minimize the impact when that actually were to happen um, of the compromise of you know your most valuable assets? So mm-hmm. it's a really, really tricky problem. It's obviously a lot more complex than the way I just super, super <laughs> oversimplified it. Um, no, it's really just that easy question. as someone who oversees. All, it's just that easy. We, uh, yeah. So. <laughs> yeah just, just, just do it. I don't understand. Right, right, right. Just do but, it. You know, but what's, 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 you know, the, the, and, you know, we talk about supply chain and we talk about dependency and all that, but the, the reality is like, you're still just as light, like, just let's say you were to go the opposite extreme. If you were to try to build everything yourself, you're just as likely to create those same problems or those same abilities or whatever. So it's not like there's a good answer, right? The, the right answer is right. It's really about dependency management and, you know, testing, scanning, being confident in those, you know, in those third parties that you are trusting, try to minimize your, your footprint. Um, I would say like, you know, don't have a bunch of library, you know, don't have a bunch of third party dependencies that all kind of do the same thing. Try and like unify and use as few as possible. Um, those are the, the, you know, that's sort of our approach. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. I I love the word dependencies because I think that that single word, I've been, I've been struggling with this for a while, thinking of like, how do we simply describe the problem? And I'm like, is it vendor supply? Is it supply chain management? Is it vendor risk management? And you hit it. I mean, dependencies, that's, that's really the issue. And I think a lot of people can visualize the idea of a dependency, like a row of dominoes, right? right. If this one domino over here falls, this other domino over here is right. also going to fall. And or like, the, I think of it in terms of like a construction, like a building, a high rise or a skyscraper, right? Like we're not going to source the steel ourselves. We're going to, you know, all of the different components that go into it. We're going to trust these various manufacturers. And then, you know, maybe we're only, maybe we're not responsible for the whole building. Maybe we're only, you know, we're only responsible for the top floor or the middle floor. Mm-hmm. And so 
we're just, you know, we're also responsible for all of the, the guys below us uh, having done their job and all of the people you know, on top of us that we don't get crushed under their weight, <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah, I think the, the construction and, and building metaphors are, are really powerful for security yeah. because they're so well representative. You know, like you have to have a strong foundation and right. <laughs> all these pieces work together and right. different experts do different things. Like you wouldn't hire the general contractor to do the demolition of the building mm-hmm. because those are, although they're related, those are different uh, right. types of expertise. But yeah, thinking through the, I mean, the the way that certainly all ethical hackers think about and malicious hackers as well think about dependencies is the attacks aren't always straight on. Actually, most of the time they're not straight on. You know, it's not right. usually like you go after this Fortune 100 enterprise directly. You yeah. go after the way that Fortune 100 enterprise has its software integrated with some third party, like maybe payment yep. processor or whatever. And those are called stepping stone attacks where you, you know, compromise mm-hmm. one in order to get to another. And that's definitely one of the, the big challenges. And we're always looking at how can you, even if you're not even talking about dependencies, but even within any attack scenario, what we're always looking at is how can you chain exploits? Mm-hmm. Because oftentimes two things, one might even be, have no significant severity to it at all. And another might be like medium, but then you combine them and it's like, oh, well, that's system-wide compromise if those right. two things happen together. Yeah, I mean, I think that reminds me, I mean, when you talk about dependencies, especially enterprises that are maybe using uh, things that they've developed and then they're they're sort of reusing them in other places. Uh, like one of the, um, I think back to my first job and I remember sitting around a room and we're talking about, we needed to deploy a feature. We want to get it done relatively quickly. And everybody's like, well, there's this other component that we could use that kind of does what we kind of want, but not exactly, but we think we could use in this context. And I remember one of the engineers saying like, I don't, I can't put my finger on it, but I think this is a terrible idea, <laughs> but nobody like, nobody really knew. And they were like, all right, whatever. And so we got it out there. And then, um, and it turned out, I mean, it wasn't a security problem, but it did create a database deadlocking issue because these two components, you know, like what this component where it was designed was in a completely different set of, you know, like libraries and part of the application where we always locked A and then B, whereas in the place it was being used, we always locked B and then A. So we created this like database deadlock. It took us six months to find because it was random and, you know, whatever. But that's the type of stuff that I think happens when, um, you know, from a security perspective, that could have just as easily been a vulnerability where the system was designed to handle this stuff and we feel good about it. And then it's yeah. like, okay, I mean, we're going to use it over here now. That's so common. I mean, I, I, can, I mean, years ago, I remember I wrote... Uh, it was a uh, TNG migrator to HP OpenView. And basically, I wrote it for you know, one specific client in order to do a migration. And it was a, written in really bad. You know, my, my developing skills are really horrible. And I wrote it. It was basically a script in Perl that actually converted things like watchdogs and uh, uh, WMI calls and SMB traps over to H, uh, HP OpenView formats. And ultimately, it was done for one purpose. And to your point, Mike, what ended up happening was is that you know somebody said, oh, you know what, I'm having another similar thing over here. I, I could re- reuse that. And then they take it. And then basically, ultimately, what I end up finding about seven, eight years later, after writing this really bad script <laughs> that did migrations, that it was ultimately created into a product and then used widely. Without, it was not done with security, but it was done for a one purpose you know, only mm-hmm. thing. And somebody decided that, you know, said, oh, you know, that could solve a lot of problems. But that's ultimately where you get a lot of those challenges and risks is that it, they end up, you know, reusing in so many areas that it should never have been used. 
while it may have saved time, that it definitely was not something that <laughs> should have been productized and delivered to, to companies. So, I think another one, Tim, I'm curious where you see this, like when things are sort of co-deployed, where you might have a system that's sort of seen as a low, low risk, low whatever. We've decided we're the implications of this thing being compromised is relatively low um, and not really thinking through its neighbors or what other things might be deployed within. And so it sort of does offer that sort of stepping stone of, okay, well, we're not going to, like the front door is always super locked. Like we'll just use the side door over here um, or we know they keep a key in the shed. Like, (laughs) 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 Uh, is that like, like how do you address that when you're talking to your, you know, your customers and and, and clients and stuff? Yeah. By, by helping them understand, Understand the actual attack sequence that might exist. So, for example, we had a uh, one of our customers had this uh, combination of issues, where the first issue that we found was that it uh, this particular application had a flaw uh, called information leakage, which basically meant that you know any user could identify the uh, user identifiers for all other users, and that's not that big of a deal. And like, you can't directly exploit it, but you don't want something like that. User IDs should be unpredictable. And in this case, they were very predictable. Database Not that big of a deal. (laughs) Right, yeah. (laughs) Um, They were definitely sequential. Um, (laughs) The second problem that we identified was with their authentication mechanism, where, sorry, uh, their authorization model was broken. And basically the way that the authorization worked was that if you wanted to change the credentials for a user, um, you needed to supply information. The information you needed to supply was the user identifier. Now on its own, every user only knows their own user ID. So not a big deal. I mean, it's bad. The authorization was definitely bad, but it wasn't like catastrophic. But now when you take these two ideas and you combine them, you can predict every user identifier. And then all you need is a user identifier to change their credentials. You've just taken over every user, every account in the entire system, including the admin. And it's like, that is system-wide compromise. And so it's slightly different than your question. That wasn't um, two inter uh, independent systems interacting with each other. It was the way that one system was built, but these dependencies and how you could uh, chain exploits was catastrophic. And really the, the point here for companies to think about is that so much of security today when it comes to software is believes whether they explicitly believe it or they just have never evaluated this assumption. But most security today in software believes that you can just do it with a scanner. You can just push a button, the problem is solved. But stories like what I just told, you can only find stuff like that manually. Like you need to find these issues and you need to be a human who says, well, how do these pieces fit together? And that's really one of the, the big, big challenges that I'm trying to advocate that companies need to think differently about. Yeah. They need to think Absolutely. of the, how things work together. Yeah. Going back to the, you know, the experience I had with Estonia, that whole service you know, mapping piece of how does everything work together and what's the ultimate you know, outcome that that's delivering. Uh, question, question, one of the big terms, was, you know, the buzzword bingo side of things we've heard, of course, is DevSecOps. Um, you know, what's your thoughts around that you know, methodology where you're actually moving, where it used to be, you know, if you look at the OWASP top 10, it was all about, you know, doing the analysis and assessment based on those, you know, different security controls and security risks against applications. 
Uh, now, basically, it's getting to these more proactive controls where it's now thinking about, well, let's move it into the development process. Um, is that something you think is going to work or going to improve things? Or it's just it's developers who are not you know, thinking about security are now having to, to do security. Um, what's your thoughts around that? I think it's a positive step, right? Anytime that we're saying, hey, let's adapt and evolve and let's make security part of that adaptation. That's like in a, in a nutshell, hell yeah. I, like, I love the thinking around that. Now, whether or not DevSecOps is forever going to be the, the solution, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I, I think it's a cool approach. Um, I think that there is, with any change like this, or evolution, I say, not necessarily change, but with any evolution, there is the risk that some percentage of the population will say, oh, this new thing solves 100% of my problems. And that's that's the risk that I, that I see is people thinking like, oh, this shiny new thing, and like I don't have to worry about it anymore. And that's definitely not going to be the case. But I do think that it's a cool step in the right direction. Um, we're, obviously, we talk a lot about uh, this, both internally with some of the things that we're doing, as well as with our customers uh, we have a whole series right now of internal talks at our company where we're all, everyone's just sort of teaching each other all these principles around DevSecOps and ideas on how to improve it. And we're going to eventually like publish those and put those out in the world. But yeah, it's it's a really interesting area. Because yeah, I really, I, I mean, really, my fear, my my fear with DevSecOps is very similar to my fear with like Agile or any of these other things where people certainly ascribe a whole bunch of ceremony or other things to it and meaning. And it's sort of misapplied or misunderstood, or you think you're doing it, but you're not really. I, I, you know, you ask mm-hmm. a bunch of people what DevSecOps means, even, if, you know, in the security field, you'll get a different answer, you know, and I think it's, you know, for me, it's about a methodology and a mentality of, you know, and it, it's similar to, you know, any other like when I look at my software engineering team, I don't expect all of my engineers to be security experts, just like I don't expect all exactly. of my engineers to be back-end developers or front-end developers or, you know, or any number yeah. of these things. And it's just about having the right team or the testing or QA. And so yeah. I think that's where, you know, like I talk to people all the time and they're like, oh yeah, my company is going more DevSecOps. I'm an, you know, this is my job. And now I'm being asked to, to, to do this other thing. And I'm fighting with the engineers all the time. And it's like, well, your guys are clearly not it, like it, you're not understanding the like the greater, more abstract. What's the problem you're trying to solve with DevSecOps? And you're just sort of jumping on this like this is how you do it, as opposed to like and that's where Agile started, right? Agile started as these guys were like, "Hey, we have this process. It seems to work for us. This was the sort of foundation of that. Do with it what you want." And then now there's like a whole bunch of companies that have taken that and like founded whole religions on it uh, of how this is how you do Scrum and this is how you do this. When really it was like, "Hey, what we're trying to." what agile was about was just shifting things a little bit sooner. Like let's iterate to success. Let's get testing involved. Let's get, you know, let's get something deployed. Let's, you know, and, and it's sort of more abstract. I think it's hard for companies to abstract. It's easier for them to, to, to like, Mm -hmm. yeah, we're going to adopt this like very, like structured thing and think that that's yeah. going to solve their problems. It's, that's it, my big fear. It's dynamic. It's ad- it has to be adaptive. That's the whole the whole point here is that it has to adapt to the needs of the business because not there's not one peg that fits everything. And to your, to your point, Mike, I remember um, a few years ago where an organization switched you know, completely agile and they were following the scrum and then following everything, all the methodology, they they went down, you know, definitely the religious approach. And it got to the point where you, know, you got team, you know, teams doing stand-ups and you had designers saying, you know, I built a tree yesterday and I built a tree today and tomorrow I'm going to build another tree. 
And these were game designers and game developers. And like, <laughs> I'm going to be building trees for the next three months and I'll have the same update every single day. So it, it really has to get into, you know, adapting to the really needs and, and making sure you're not wasting time for the sake of being agile, but really making sure that it's becoming efficient to your point is delivering, you know, faster, more efficient and, you know, let's say, you know, smaller improvements over, you know, time rather than waiting a long time for, for, for the one big release. So, um, you know, and one, one thing I really thought that, you know, of this whole DevSecOps was, you know, what was lost was around the OWASP, you know, proactive controls. Because for me, that was really, the big change was about really being proactive and putting it much earlier in all of the phases. And I think, Mike, your, your point is, is critical, is that it's not about changing your development team to being security. It's about actually embedding security into the development team and having people who's security minded, not having everyone doing it. And doing a buddy system where you have people overseeing and making sure that, Security practices are being adhered to. Um, Ted, I have a question. Another question, Ryan. You know, from organizations who, you know, always get the the when we're talking about you know software and development and, and security about whether open source versus proprietary side of things. Do you, do you, how do you find that in, in in the companies you're dealing with, and, and what's your advice and in, in findings there? Um, is there a big difference and and uh, benefits to either either or? Uh, one of the common things that I hear people believe, which is uh, a mistaken belief, is that because something is open source, thus it is more secure. Um, and the reason is, oh, well, more eyeballs are on it and more people can look at it and it's you know visible to everybody. And it's like, yes, those conditions are true. But that doesn't necessarily mean that someone is actively doing security at the level of where someone who's maybe commercializing the software might invest in it. That also doesn't mean that someone who is has a closed source system that they're investing appropriately either. So in my opinion, the nature of the code, whether it's open source or not, actually doesn't have a bearing on the security. But I do believe that the way that it practically plays out is you're more likely to see the proper investment of security if it's uh, if it's not open source, because when it's open source, people feel uh, attached to it because they're contributing to this greater good, but they're not necessarily going to invest appropriately or on the right cadence. I mean, also, who wants to stop someone from putting something malicious in there and, and all mm -hmm. these kinds of things? So, uh, I think it's really an independent um, independent question. That is, it's good that you're asking it because they, re they really do need to be broken apart. Yeah, I agree. So, Mike, what's your thoughts? Have you had any? Yeah, no, I mean, things? yeah, I think, right. I, I think uh, Ted nailed it. Like, there's not one, neither of those is inherently better or worse. It's, is there a security, like, for certain open source projects, um, there's there are security people attached, right? Mm -hmm. And it goes through a lot of review, and it's a lot harder to do. For others, it's a little looser, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, same thing on, you know, closed proprietary systems. How many people, you know, just do security through obscurity? And and you know what? There's something to be said for security through obscurity. It's obscure. It's hard to know how this is going to work. <laughs> and so there's, there is a, you know, there it's one of the layers of depth. Um, so no, I think you're, you're absolutely right. Um, I do want to say though, uh, just jumping real quickly back to DevSecOps, because I know we're talking about application security, but one of the things about DevSecOps, I think gets overlooked a lot is that it's also infrastructure as code. It's how all of the other side also benefits from software engineering best practices being applied to how we deploy. So when I think about it, the benefits aren't just about embedding security people into software application teams so that the security people can teach 
you know, mm-hmm. application security. It's also so that those security um, people who are also doing operations and those operations people who are doing operations, like are also learning the best practices from software engineering. How do we do code reviews? How do we treat infrastructure as code? Everything is virtual these days. And so mm-hmm. I think it's, a, it's, it's more than just a one-way thing. It's this bi-directional, everybody benefits from it. And if you, if you attack it from that perspective, you get a much better result because then everybody feels like they're contributing and everybody's helping each other as opposed to creating this like one way, like, oh, the security guys are here just to educate Sil- the application silos. developers. Yeah. Right. Rather than by building up the silos. But anyway, so I did, I, I just wanted to bring that up, but we, I'm happy to jump back onto the, uh, <laughs> on the closed nope. source versus open source. <laughs> yeah. But, but expanding on that, what, that's a, it's another good question, uh, Mike, that you bring up is around. So, so Ted, one of the things that can, uh, my background is all around virtualization and containerization and, you know, doing things in a modular approach and um, doing microservices. Do you think that's a, a better way going forward, especially when you're doing, you know, application security is when you're building everything in smaller modules and that when you do run into a problem or you do run into an issue that it's much, you know, you just need to swap out that one modular or fix the one piece. Um, what's your thoughts around, you know, virtualization, containerization and uh, those things? Is there a benefit to security doing that way? There are benefits, undeniably. I mean, you just rattled off several of them for sure. The I think the broader answer to that question is that it, to a certain extent, it depends on what you're trying to achieve with the system, uh, both the, the business problem that you're trying to solve and then the business of you know solving that, right? So those are two things that I would be, I think, mistaken to make a universal statement that said, you know, everybody should do X of this, you know, on this particular specific uh, topic area. And that's one of the things that I found that's really tricky about trying to, I guess, educate and advocate around ideas related to application security, because you can make some universal statements Mm -hmm. that do apply to everybody. Like, you should share information in this way. You should do this kind of testing. You should uh, prove the business case in this way. You should think about your threat model in this way. But then when you get down into the brass tacks of like, okay, developer, step one, do this. You know, when you start talking about at a language level or an operating system level, that's where it becomes uh, very dependent on the conditions of yeah, what problem you're trying to solve and the business model built around it. Yeah, I mean, on microservices, that's like that's one of my big, buzzword that like actually bothers me a lot. I think that the vast majority of companies that think that they need to use these microservices, like there's like 10%, maybe 1% of companies in the world actually really need to go down a microservices route. I think that you, the complications of having that far outweigh some of the benefits you get out of it. I think it's a very like interesting, exciting, like buzzword or, or whatever, like concept. But then in practice, you have to be like a Google or a Facebook to have to deal with that level of scale of data and that many engineers and that many different problems. And I think like, I think Ted brought up a great like example or, or counterpoint, right? In a monolithic service, chances are that authentication problem that you saw that you were talking about earlier, where it's like, you only need the, to know a user ID in order to change the thing. Chances are, if that was in a monolith, it would be harder to exploit because it would probably be all internal calls, all internal functions back in the back end. And there would be all of these things that would sort of prevent that from being exposed mm-hmm. to an end user potentially. Whereas if that's a microservice, there's a, there's a good chance that, there, that there's all of these now tiny little boxes and it's so much harder 
to identify how they're working together and like, oh, that because these five things are interacting in this way, that that's what's causing the security vulnerability. When you look at them each independently, they all look fine. It's not until you see them in full operation that the problem sort of shows itself. And I, and I think that, you know, as nice as it is to be able to have smaller teams and smaller projects and be able to do that from a microservices perspective, there's all these other complications that people don't necessarily take into account, the, the complexity of that and of, of tracking all of these now APIs and messages that are going through the system. And how do you make sure that all of these boxes are, are, you know, like all those messages are secure and coming from who you think they're coming from. And, and all of that, um, it just adds a, a lot of complexity that I don't think enough people take into, into account. Absolutely. Yeah, complexity ultimately <laughs> increases the likelihood of a successful attack. So right. certainly one of the things that we all advocate for, right, is sim uh, simplicity. Keep it simpler, right. you know, reduce attack surface. Yeah. Um, that isn't always viable because of what the solution needs to do to solve right. the problem it's setting out to solve. But you're, it's for exactly the reason that you just brought up. Complexity introduces attack probability. So, Ted, you know, tell us tell us about your book and how people can can get obtain a copy of it. And uh, also, you know, um, let's say you know are you thinking about a, a, a newer book coming out or an edition later? Is there something you're looking to? Are you working on secretly in the background? And who should who should be the person that purchase your book? I mean, I'm sitting here with my copy yeah, uh, my desk is. here it's almost sitting not too far um, away when i need to go for a reference so but uh, tell me tell me about uh, you know what, you know how who, who should read it and you know where, where can they get a copy of the book yeah so i, I wrote the book for basically three uh, audiences the first is what i kind of lumped together as technical leadership you know CISOs, mm -hmm. ctos vps of engineering whoever it is that's uh, ultimately at the other end of the pointed <laughs> finger when someone says, you're responsible for the security of this thing. So that's the first audience. The second audience is uh, software developers. And then the third audience is security professionals. So it really serves all three of those audiences. And uh, where you can learn, I mean, you can buy it on Amazon if you want, if you wanted to learn more about the book itself, or if you need to even get a hold of me or you need to you know, touch base to ask questions about security testing and how I might be able to help you with that. Everything you can find all that at uh, hackablebook.com is the website for the book. And uh, yeah, as far as another book, um, it's funny. <laughs> I only like just wrote this one and I get that question every day. And I ask myself that question every day. There might be another, I, there's probably another book in me, but I haven't committed to uh, to one yet. Well, just horror stories, I think would be good. Always happy, <laughs> always happy to be a reviewer. That's, uh... <laughs> oh, hey, so, what, I might, I might take you up on that. So. But it's been, it's been awesome chatting with you. It's awesome having you on the show. Really, hopefully I get to see you to some point this year or later, whenever things come back to somewhat, whenever travel starts again. Um, yeah. It's it's now been officially over a year where I've actually been in Estonia without traveling. It's my longest period in Estonia, um, so I'm 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 looking forward to when uh, things uh, start to open up a bit more, and uh, hopefully catch you at some point uh, this year um, at an event. And yourself, Mike, as well. When I get hopefully to DC. Yep. Um, so for the audience, Ted, it's been fantastic. Hopefully, this has been valuable for the audience. Uh, Mike, any any final thoughts or words? No, definitely enjoyed the conversation. Uh, look forward to reading your book. Um, I probably should have read it before this, but I'm, I'm, I'm bad like that. Um, but yeah, uh, it was definitely a pleasure. I, I enjoyed every every moment. Thanks yeah. for joining us. Uh, Ted, is, yeah, is there an audio version? Me. Is there an audio version yet? 
Okay. It's in the works. That's it's that's a works. great <laughs> TF question. It will be out. Uh, I don't have the exact date, but it's in production right now. And I, I want to say it's going to be somewhere in April. Okay. Are, are you looking are forward you, to that? Are you doing the voice or is it? <laughs> uh, I opted to hire a professional voice okay. actor. And that was actually a really difficult conversation <laughs> because, you know, I'm listening to all these auditions and I'm like, he's not saying it the exact way that I would say it. And so I, I asked a bunch of people for advice on that. Mm. And it was a good humbling moment because, you know, they're like, Ted, you're the only person who's ever going to read this book the way that you hear it. Yes. So, you know, make it so that the person who's going to listen to this is going to be able to consume the ideas you're trying to help them yeah. with. And so I was like, okay, well, that is great advice. So I got this, you know, amazing voice actor who's like super baritone and you just <laughs> want to fall asleep listening to him talk about like the nutrition label. Like, he's just amazing. So the other thing is listen. keep in mind that most people like me listen to it at 2x speed anyway. So <laughs> intonation and the rest of it don't really matter. <laughs> We're just there trying to go. consume the information. I'm, so. not, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not 2x speed yet. I'm more like a 1.25. <laughs> no, I usually go double. <laughs> but absolutely, Ted, it's been awesome having you on the show. And again, you know, great chatting with you. And, uh, you know, for the audience, I hope this has been, you know, enjoyable again. Application security, you know, as, as Ted mentioned, software runs the world today. Um, so if you're not doing application security, uh, let's make sure uh, you're thinking about and prioritizing it. So again, this is 401 Access Denied, your award-winning uh, podcast. And it's a pleasure, um, you know, serving you again and look forward to hear, you know, sharing our thoughts and ideas every two weeks. Tune in. And if you missed previous episodes, you know, go and subscribe and listen to the previous episodes. I'm pretty sure you'll have fun. So thank you. It's been awesome. And stay safe and take care. Learn how your team can get a free trial of Cybrae for Business by going to www.cybrae.it slash business. This podcast is also brought to you by Thycotic, the leader in privileged access management. To learn more, visit www.thycotic.com.